Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut-affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees in nearly 90 unions across the state. The series provides a deeper dive into issues impacting our members and our movement as part of AFT Connecticut's engagement and communications efforts. Welcome, sisters and brothers. Uh, my name is Jan Hockadell, the president of AFT Connecticut. And once again, I'm co-hosting this latest podcast of AFT in Action. Joining me today is my co-host, Alicia Blake. Alicia, when I first met you, you were running for a seat in New London on the for the school board. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Yeah. On the Labor is Your Neighbor platform. Yes. Um, as a member of New London's local 5123, you are also a longtime legislative advocate or liaison for our LPAC committee, otherwise known as the Legislative and Political Action Committee. So when the local chapter of the National Public Pension Coalition was launched earlier this year, which was to promote and protect defined benefit retirement plans, you were hired as the campaign coordinator for Connecticut's Coalition for Retirement Security. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? The National Public Pension Coalition was founded uh, down in D.C. in 2007 with the main mission to educate policymakers and the general public on the impact of pensions. So we're not just talking to our own members, to public sector members. Um, we're, we're really trying to speak to everyone about the importance of defined benefit pensions and um, the importance of a secure retirement. Well, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. It's great to have your perspective from a grassroots advocate's view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the work that I've done uh, with my local and state union has done so much for me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be doing the work. Great. So, well, this discussion is certainly in your wheelhouse. Um, we're taking up part two of a conversation about retirement security. It's a follow-up to our last episode, where we started the conversation and answered members' questions about our collective efforts to promote p- pensions. Yep, absolutely. And that episode focused on the teacher's retirement, uh, the teacher's retirement system, or the TRS. Um, and this time we'll be focusing on the state employee retirement system, or the SERS. Um, and that's a system that includes the defined benefit retirement plans uh, that Connecticut state workers contribute to and rely on. It was created 80 years ago, and today is managed by the Connecticut State Employees Retirement Commission. Right. And like the Teacher Pension Fund, the state system, or SERS, um, has been in the headlines recently um, for its unfunded liability, which was the result of generations of politicians which followed the pay-as-you-go kind of approach and failed to adequately save for future employees' retirement benefits. And as a matter of fact, the pre-funding of SERS didn't really even begin until the early 1970s. And full payments to the, the fund didn't start until we won collective bargaining rights a decade later. So mm-hmm. still, 40 years of irresponsibility means there's a lot of damage to be undone. But that doesn't mean that the current system isn't stable and it's, it's working great. It means that we just have to catch up on the lack of payment from the beginning. That's absolutely right. Um, It's part of the reason why the National Public Pension Coalition decided to launch here in Connecticut. Um, We are the 15th state-level coalition like this uh, that the NPPC has launched. Um, And as long as politicians and special interests are able to shift the blame for the state's fiscal challenges to these unfunded liabilities onto workers, um, their, their employees' retirement security is going to be at risk. 
So to discuss SIRS in the additional efforts um, to protect its, import its importance as a public asset, we've asked Kevin Lembo to sit down with us, and Kevin is our state comptroller. And in addition to overseeing the administration of the benefits for our active workforce, he also oversees the administration and benefits for our retired state employees as well. Mm -hmm. So Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, your office's retirement service division currently serves more than 40,000 retirees? And they provide critical support to the Retirement Commission, which includes representation from AFT Connecticut. And your staff in the Healthcare Policy Benefits Division administers the medical, pharmacy, and dental benefits for over 200,000 active and retired employees. And as we did in our last episode, I have to give out a shout out to AFT's A&R, or Administrative and Residual Employees Union, um, who work in your office. Um, they're a big part of achieving the agency's mission of public service. So, Kevin, welcome to AFT in Action, and we appreciate your willingness to answer our members' questions and for hosting Alicia and I here at your office in Hartford today. That's great, Jan. It's great to be with you uh, and to try to clear up and explain a little bit about what we do every day. Uh, I work with a great group of people, as you know, here in the Comptroller's office, um, you know, almost 300, uh, that do the work that people don't think about every day, but they sure think about it when something goes wrong. Right. Uh, so uh, when a check doesn't go out or a benefit doesn't work for some reason, uh, we hear. So uh, these are great people doing great work. Before we get to the specific questions, let's um, get some background for our members who aren't employed by the state and maybe not as familiar with the state employee's retirement system. Can you explain how your office administers the SERS pension benefits? Certainly. Uh, so uh, often people will ask me, like, why do we have a treasurer and a comptroller? Right. Um, and we're both related to to this very important issue around uh, employee pensions. So uh, in simplest forms, it's money in, money out. Money in goes to the treasurer, money out goes through me. Uh, and that means pensions and payroll and health care and all of that. Our role in the retirement system is multifaceted. One is that we keep track of the time that people accumulate and when they have breaks in service and what tier they're in and calculate in advance what their benefit might look like when and if they're ready to retire. And then there's that moment where they are ready to retire. And so we have to get a calculation on board and we have to give them some surety uh, about what benefit they can accept, expect every month uh, when they go out into retirement. And then in addition to that, we work with a number of stakeholders, both management and labor, uh, to make sure that the fund is properly administered. Um, and we're doing it according to the, uh, the collective bargaining agreements that are in place for each of those tiers. And so let's talk about that, um, our shared commitment to stable, secure, defined benefit plans. Um, so what are your thoughts on the broader value of pensions to all residents, not just those who rely on them for income and in retirement? It's curious and infuriating uh, to me uh, that the, the conversation has changed so drastically over the last couple of decades. Um, and it became down, it came, comes down, I think, largely to uh, haves and have-nots. You know, yeah. in the private sector, uh, folks often lacked uh, the benefit of a unionized workforce or a collective bargaining agreement to, to protect them. And so in the private sector, companies got out of the pension business. And I understand that from a balance sheet perspective, because um, often they didn't do anything different in how much they were contributing initially to a 401k, for example, versus a pension system. Uh, but what they did get rid of was long-term liability. Because when the employee goes out the door, they go out with the cash value of their account, whether the market's up or the market's down, and off they go. And it's, you know, good luck, God bless, and we hope everything goes well. A defined pension system really... Uh, takes into account those fluctuations in markets and uh, our long-term commitment to our employees 
who have made a long-term commitment to us. So I'd love always to flip that conversation on its head and say, you know, yes to defined benefit pensions and why not for everyone, particularly if they're administered in a responsible way and uh, Politicians, as you pointed out earlier, uh, Jan, actually make the payments uh, that they committed to make. So let's talk about our recent efforts to stabilize the SERS system, which directly answers the question that inspired the topic for both this and our, and our last episode, which came from Paul, who is a state employee from Shelton, and he asked, what is being done to protect pensions? So union leaders in CBAC, the State Employees Bargaining Agent Coalition, um, and by the way, after your informative pre- uh, presentation a couple of years ago, we have worked with the current and the former administrations to re-amortize SERS uh, funding actually twice in the past three years. And in fact, the approach is very similar to how we're shoring up the teacher's retirement system, Mm -hmm. which we discussed in our last episode. So can you explain for our listeners the benefit of preventing those future spikes in payments um, and to reduce the plan's unfunded liabilities? Because of a combination of bad behavior, meaning folks, the political figures not making those contributions into the account over the years, and also um, strange sort of parts of the agreement that really had the, the, the funding level sort of spiking up and down. Uh, and a deal that was cut, frankly, by the Roland administration, and I hate to go back to this old saw, but you know, it's, you can't fix the problem. You can't chart a path toward sort of fiscal health unless you understand what got you into this in the first place. If we had kept going the way the Roland trajectory uh, forecast, because he took his payments down and then pushed all future payments and made them much larger, we were going up this slope, right? Way, way up, almost vertical. And it was growing at $100 million a year. So Governor Malloy at the time uh, grabbed folks from, I think it was Boston College, and uh, came up with a pretty good retrospective of, like, how did we get here? Uh, But then they did something interesting. They took a couple of ideas that I would call interesting in the lab, um, (laughs) but not really great in the real world, and threw those in as ideas that they wanted to, uh, to apply to the pension fund. And it was that moment where I felt like I needed to step out in front of the bus because, you know, it would have been easy for labor to say, no, no, don't do this. But they wouldn't have had the same heft, you know, as if I sort of disagreed with the governor publicly. And I did. But you can't just disagree, right? you got to then put your own plan on the table. And we did. And that actually served, as you pointed out, as the framework for the agreement that was ultimately struck between the Malloy administration uh, and labor. Mm And it did a number of things around being smart about you know, the assumptions that are built in there. It drags out the repayment period a little bit. Um, but it did the most important thing, and that is when you have a large liability and it looks so big, your inclination is to just look away mm-hmm. right? or to look at your credit card bill and say, I can't do anything about this, so I'm going to make believe nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do that because they're so overwhelmed by it. Um, we wrapped our arms around it and understood that the thing you need to do in the face of a large liability, if you can't erase it, is you have to make it flat and predictable over time. Right. Because then you can budget around it, and then the economy helps to make that less and less painful from year to year. And so that's what was done. And uh, we kept the commitment to what I will call the Weicker Agreement, which goes way back uh, when an unfunded liability was first uh, identified formally by the Weicker administration, kept our agreement to those employees or those retirees now, um, and then stretched out our repayment period uh, for some of the uh, uh, active employees. 
As a quick note, CBAC um, leaders and several other public sector unions have been meeting with the Lamont administration on alternatives, and these discussions led to the right climate for the latest reamortization agreement. Um, and I want to say that we're also talking about additional um, health care savings that don't involve any more givebacks or benefit cuts to our state employees. So, you know, of course, the retirement health benefits are just as important as pensions. And Lila, a retired state employee from Wethersfield, called our new podcast answer line with a question on this front and so let's give a listen to that. Uh, my question is what is being done to protect retiree ben- health benefits? So it's a great question, Lila, and thank you. Um, so a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, for a long time, uh, Connecticut, for whatever reason, never really maximized our federal Medicare reimbursement for our retirees. It was kind of crazy. We saw it on the pharmacy side. And in many cases, Connecticut state government was paying as the first payer for retirees who had Medicare on pharmacy. Um, That's really not the way the system is designed to work. And the federal government is supposed to be first, and we're supposed to be the backup. So the first thing we did was to sort of clean up all of those things. And when I say we, this is a large group of folks, right? Yes, a lot of the thinking, a lot of certain the implementation happens here in my office with our staff. But all of this is hashed out at the Healthcare Cost Containment Committee. That's a labor and management committee, uh, I think six and six. And they take each question around the health benefit and look at the collective bargaining agreement and then figure out in the terms of that agreement, can we make a change that will make the plan operate better or be healthier fiscally over time. And all of that is with an eye toward not taking anything away from anyone ever, but toward long-term sustainability. We put on the table the idea of moving our retirees to Medicare Advantage. And there were some of our retirees who were unhappy about that initially because they knew neighbors who had Medicare Advantage plans that they bought in the corner Medicare Advantage store, I don't know, like through the broker. (laughs) And they thought, oh my God, I'm going to have that crappy plan that my neighbor has. But what we did was we took the plan as defined and then put it into that managed care, that environment. And what that enabled us to do was not to forego care, not to push people further away from care, but actually in many cases to pull people closer to care, to give our chronically ill retirees better case management, to put home visits in the house to make sure people were, were doing well, and simultaneously pulling down tons of new federal dollars that were ours as mm-hmm. a state uh, and that we were leaving on the table because we were not in this kind of an environment. So it really took uh, what had been a flashpoint for many folks, like look at how much it costs to provide retiree health care, and took it completely off the table because we're saving uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars by doing this and still providing the same, I would argue, better benefit that they had before. And the number one piece of feedback I get when I talk to retirees is silver sneakers. Everybody's very excited that their Y membership or their Planet Fitness membership can be paid through the plan. And so hopefully that encourages some of our folks to get moving. Thanks for explaining that, Kevin. That's admittedly um, an area that I'm I'm a bit less savvy on, and I think that it's a gray area for a lot of our members as well. So I, I, I think that that was great. Um, and it's also a good segue to addressing the broader healthcare advocacy work of your office. Um, and a recent example of that is the pharmacy benefit manager um, contract secured with CVS Caremark. So can you share more on how the agreement 
will save taxpayers money um, while reducing prescription drug costs for retired and active state employees. I'm pretty proud of the work that we did around this contract yeah. and the process uh, that led us to the contract. Um, and one of the things about a job like this one is, you know, I stand for election every four years, but then after that, I surround myself with a group of really smart people who make me look good, <laughs> even when uh, I'm not completely, you know, uh, dialed in. So I've got a bunch of really smart people here who helped us to engage in a two-year process to look at our pharmacy costs and figure out how do we align incentives, meaning how does the doctor and the patient and the pharmacy benefit manager and the pharmacist, how are we all sort of, how do we align that in a way that doesn't put us at cross purposes? Um, because in the old design, it was in the interests of CVS Caremark to prescribe the most expensive drug mm -hmm. because they were getting a percentage on the larger price. Now we've capped that at X and no matter if it's a $100,000 drug or a $10,000 drug or a $100 drug, you're getting the same dispensing fee, generally speaking. So we took the best thinking from New Jersey and Pennsylvania and other places and brought it to Connecticut and then put our own stuff into this request for proposals, an RFP, and held our breath a little bit because it was so edgy. We were going to put them in direct competition with each other, not just in their initial proposal, but in subsequent negotiations as we got down to finalists, um, we were asking them for full transparency, full auditing, capping on dispensing fees, a whole bunch of things that were unique uh, to this market in particular. I held my breath. I actually was wondering, are they, are they going to stand down? Are they going to adjust? But no, it didn't happen that way. They want to do business with us. And we always have to remember that, whether it's this or healthcare reform or pension reform, whatever it is, these companies, for as much as sometimes they scream and yell and complain and cry and whatever else is they do, they want to do business with us. We're a big customer. So they came to the table and then the field got cut 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 down. We had all sorts of rounds of negotiation and we would put them into auctions against one another on terms and on prices. So we got down to what we thought was absolutely the best possible deal for the plan and therefore for the employees and retirees and therefore for the taxpayers right. of the state. So we it was a win-win-win yeah. and we are doing the same sort of benefit administration we were doing before. We are dispensing the same kind of drugs we were dispensing before, but we're doing it at a savings of about $33 million a year. Well, Kevin, um, I think our listeners completely understand why we asked you to be part of this retirement security discussion, and we really appreciate you answering our members' questions and hosting us here at your office. So on behalf of all of our state employee union members and all our members, um, thank you for all you do every day to lift them up. Well, thank you. Thank you for your partnership and for your help. and. Uh, you know, like there's always more work to do. So Absolutely. We Thanks, look forward Kevin. to working with you on it. And Alicia, I'm glad you could be part of this latest conversation also. And um, I can tell you that our LPAC members, <laughs> which we just mess, met the other day, missed your contributions greatly. But, you know, we're very fortunate that you've taken on this new role. And we couldn't ask for a better advocate to lead the fight to protect our public pensions in, in Connecticut. I don't think that this was necessarily the path I was expecting to take, um, but you know, the UNI union is all about teaming up with community and labor allies, accomplishing these shared goals, and it's just as important for uh, the private sector to be paying attention to these issues as the public sector. Agreed. Agreed. So finally, I want to thank our members for listening to this latest episode, and um, I really hope that you found um, the discussion informative. Um, and once again, I invite questions for the next episode, which we are going to take on the subject of workplace violence um, and what we're doing about 
about it. So members can send their questions or feedback um, by email to actnetreply at aftct.org. That's A-C-T-N-E-T-R-E-P-L-Y at sign A-F-T-C-T dot O-R-G. Plus, members um, can leave messages with their comments or questions to be played in future episodes, as you heard um, that we did in this session. And you can do that by dialing in to 860-257-9782 and asking for extension 116. That's 860-257-9782, extension 116. Members' voices are really important, and it's you that makes the difference. So make sure your voices are heard today. Thank you in advance for being part of our next discussion. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too, and help build the power of the UNI in...